Um, our scripture reading is from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 9 through 12. 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, verses 9 through 12. And that's on page 301 in the Pew Bible. So if you grab one of the Bibles in those uh, pews in front of you, it's page 301. Also, if you don't have a Bible of your own, if you're uh, newer to church, newer to Christianity, and you don't have a Bible uh, to call your own, please take that Bible uh, in the pew with you as a gift from us. We'd love for each person uh, to have a copy of the scriptures for themselves. We believe that that is how God speaks to us most clearly. And so... Um, if you don't have a Bible, please uh, take one of those this morning. So now hear God's word from 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 9. There Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed the prophets with a sword, and I, even I alone, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Paul Brandis, and I serve here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community as the associate pastor. I'm thrilled that each of you are here this morning, and I'd ask that you would bow your heads with me as we pray, and we'll ask God to help us understand this, this passage in 1 Kings 19. Father in heaven, thank you uh, for who you are and for what you do. As we open your word together, as we seek to hear what it is you have to say to us, I pray, Father, for understanding, I pray for illumination. I pray for our hearts and minds and souls to be opened. Speak to us today, O oh God. Amen. Well, have you ever had to lose the battle in order that you could win the war? Give up maybe a, a short gain or two so that in the end you could win the, the bigger war that was going on? I, I feel like I've done this over and over and over again since I became a dad a couple years ago. And I thought about getting a picture for the example that came to mind first for this, but even though Bevan's only two, I thought it might still embarrass him, but he's really not a big fan of pants. He's really kind of more of like a diapers-only kid right now. And, and listen, I knew when we had him, this is an 18-year-long struggle, and, and not even just 18. You know, parenting goes far beyond that. And, you know, if occasionally I lose the pants battle, so be it. There's a bigger war going on here. Maybe you've experienced something similar as a parent. Or maybe you've had similar experiences in other areas of your life. Maybe at work you've lost the battle of uh, taking a day off, even if the to-do list was long, so that you could come back the next week recharged and ready for the long haul. Or maybe you've done this in a game or while playing a sport. And also, this happens in actual battles and actual wars. That's where the phrase comes from. 
So I think as humans, we're pretty well versed in this concept. Lose the battle, but eventually win the war. But what about God? To me, it feels like he shouldn't ever have to concede defeat. That he should be able to win the war and all of the battles. I mean, after all, he is God, isn't he? But instead of winning all the battles, it often feels like God loses more battles than he wins. And it feels that way whether we're reading the Bible, dealing with God in our own lives, or looking at the world around us. So where does that leave us? Sure, as Christians, we're supposed to trust that ultimately God's got it and the war will be won. But along the way, there have already been some major battles conceded and it's likely that there will be more. Which leads us this morning to this question. How do we trust God when it feels like he's losing? How do we trust God when it feels like he's losing? I think that's a question that the prophet Elijah would have wrestled with as well. We've been telling Elijah's story this summer in a teaching series called With Us. And if you've missed any of the sermons so far, I'd encourage you to catch up. We have a a Sunday morning sermons podcast, and you can also find them on our website. And when we left off last week, Elijah was on a journey to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And this morning in the passage that Bill read for us in verse 9, we find that he's still hiding. He's holed up in a cave. But why? How did he get here? Well, a couple weeks ago, we looked at a story that at the time, and on the face of it, it seemed like a definitive victory for God and Elijah. You see, this is a really dark period in the history of God's people, the Israelites. They had swapped out their worship of Yahweh, the one true God, our God. They'd swapped it out for worship of Baal, the supposed storm god. And God's people were led into this evil swap by their king, Ahab, and his wife, Jezebel. So this wasn't some organic wandering with the people sort of just drifting off with their leader kind of calling them back to God. This was a top-down political decree. You will worship Baal. But then there's this showdown on Mount Carmel. That's 1 Kings 18. It's a showdown between Elijah, God's prophet, and the evil prophets of Baal. But at a higher level, and even maybe at a more real level, this is a showdown between Yahweh and Baal. And Yahweh wins. Baal is shown to be who he is. Nothing. Nobody. But Yahweh. Yahweh rains down fire from heaven, proving himself before Ahab and all of the other people who had abandoned worship of him. And at that point, it certainly seemed like a complete victory. Elijah certainly thought it was. The Israelites initially bow down to worship Yahweh again. The wicked prophets are killed. And Elijah even prays successfully for the three-year drought to end. And it does. Rain pours from the heavens. You have to figure, if you were Elijah at this point, you'd be thinking it was all over. God's won. I can come out of hiding. We did it. God's people will turn back to him. Ahab and Jezebel will change their ways. It's over. But it wasn't. Ahab and Jezebel didn't change their ways. In fact, Jezebel, in the very next chapter, she doubles down on finding and killing Elijah. And if you read the rest of the book of 1 Kings, you see that the people, while they initially turn back to worship God after his show of force on Mount Carmel, that they still over and over again dabble in Baal worship throughout the rest of the book. And let that sink in for a moment. Can you imagine a more massive, public, miraculous victory than what happened on Mount Carmel? 
rain, I mean, sorry, fire from heaven dousing the altar that had previously just been covered in water. And yet it still feels like somehow God is losing. It'd be like if earlier in Israel's history, when God parted the Red Sea so that they could escape the Egyptian army that's pursuing them, it would be like if the people are like, man, God, that's a cool stunt. But nah, we're good. We're going to stay here. So Elijah flees to save his life. He actually even leaves the country. He travels south out of Israel into Judah, and he's despairing at his lowest point. Understandably so. He says, kill me, God, just end it. Take my life. I'm no better than anyone else that's tried to lead your people. But God says, no, I'm not finished with you. He gives Elijah a snack and a nap, strength for the journey. And Elijah moves onward toward Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. From where he was when God gave him a snack and a nap, it was maybe a journey of 200 miles from there to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. That's not insignificant, obviously, but it probably should have taken him about a week or two. But the text, the text tells us that it took him 40 days. Elijah's doing a bit of wandering, and I can't blame him. If I was in his place, I know that I would have felt, as I imagine he did, like a ship without a rudder. Where do I go from here? But he eventually arrives. He's at Mount Sinai. This is a special mountain for God and his people. This is where Moses first met God in the burning bush. Later, it's where Moses heard from God amidst thunder and lightning and earthquakes as the law, the Ten Commandments, were revealed and given to him. Big moments of grandeur happen at this mountain. God shows up in clear and unmistakable ways. And I, and I have to imagine that maybe Elijah is hoping for something similar to happen. He's certainly waiting for God. I think that's obvious. He's holed up in his cave and he's, he's rehearsing a speech. A speech that I call the God, why are you losing speech? Have you ever made one of those? A moment where you got it all straight in your head just so you could turn to God and say, what the heck are you doing? I know I've made those. And when I do, I do what Elijah did. I hole up, just me, myself, and I. I find my version of a cave, I get it all straight, and I wait for God to show up so I can accuse him. And for Elijah, God does show up. It's really a lot like the beginning of a divine counseling session. What brings you to my office today, Elijah? What are you doing here? And why the cave? How's that working out for you? Tell me more. And then here it is. It's Elijah's big speech, his big moment, what he's prepared for. Verse 10 of 1 Kings 19. Elijah said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Um, God, I, I don't know if you notice, but everyone on our side is losing. I'm the only one left, and I'm close to being killed too. Then what will you do? And, and it's like, of course you're alone, Elijah. You're in a cave hiding. And, and it's a bit dramatic too, because what about Obadiah? We met him a couple weeks ago. Obadiah was a, a faithful man of God. He hadn't betrayed God and worshipped Baal. 
And in fact, Obadiah tells Elijah that he has preserved faithful prophets. He's hiding them in caves. What about those guys? But, but God's patient with Elijah. He says, okay, I'll show you. I'll reveal myself to you. Come out of the cave. Stand before me on my mountain. And this, this is why Elijah came. This is the moment he's been waiting for, anticipating. It's why he traveled all those miles. What have you got for me, Yahweh? Let's see it. Verses 11 and 12. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. With each incredible show of power, you can almost imagine Elijah growing in excitement. Yes, bring it. Wind so powerful that it breaks the rocks off of the mountain. But wait, that wasn't you, God? An earthquake so strong that the mountain trembles. But still not you? And then a searing fire. Elijah feels the heat. Surely, surely this is you, God. You are in the fire on Mount Carmel. Is this you? But no, the roaring wind grows quiet, the tossed debris of the broken mountain settles, the fire withers, and the silence reemerges. It's deafening. And then, out of the silence, the end of verse 12, and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. A low whisper. The word in the original language is tough. It, it means thin silence, gentle, stunted, almost somehow an audible silence. But, but God's in the whisper, not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, in the whisper. How do we know? The beginning of verse 13. And when Elijah heard the low whisper, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Elijah hears the whisper and he covers his face. This is a sign of submissive worship. It's a sign of, of reverence and respect. Elijah recognized who was in the whisper and he responds. This is good. Because you see back in verse 11, God told Elijah to stand before him on the mountain. God commanded him before any of the craziness happened to come out of the cave. But did you notice Elijah didn't? He didn't leave the cave until he heard the whisper. It was disappointing disobedience. He had stayed back. He had waited to see if God would show up. But, but, he hears the whisper. He recognizes that God is in it. And he covers his face and he comes out of the cave, trembling. God speaks to him again, asks him the same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And the air is thick with anticipation. Will Elijah respond differently? Has he remembered who he's addressing? He's addressing the God of everything. He's addressing the God who is always in control, even if it doesn't seem like it. Will he remember that? No. His response in verse 14 is the exact same that it was in verse 10. Word for word, he repeats it back to God, saying once again, I'm all alone. I've done my part, but we're losing, and I'm about to be killed. What gives? And this moment leads to our first observation this morning. God is quieter than we want. God is quieter than we want. I think Elijah certainly would have agreed with this assessment. 
But before we're too hard on Elijah, don't we often feel the same way? I know I do. When I'm at a crossroads, I want God to show up louder, bigger, clearer. When I'm in the cave, I want the wind, I want the fire. I don't want the whisper. Trouble is, often the whisper is what God prefers. And if I'm honest, I miss God's whisper quite often because I don't know how to listen well. Maybe I'm not alone in that. So let me ask us this morning, are we listening? Are we listening? A smart follow-up to that question would be, how do we hear from God today? How do we hear from God today? Well, the primary place that we hear from God is through his word, the Bible. God has spoken and he's said quite a lot. If you want wisdom on how to live, on what decisions to make, reassurances of his love and of his promises, if you want to see where all of this is going, the Bible is the first place to look. The Bible is one of God's loudest whispers. But God also speaks through his people. Maybe you've had that happen, a trusted friend, a wise mentor, your spouse speaking into your life in the perfect time, in the perfect way. Of course, whenever someone, whatever someone says to you has to align with God's word, with the Bible, but through his people is a key way that God still whispers today. Then there are times when God does speak directly to us, maybe not audibly, but through a sort of audible silence. When you're praying or reflecting and you begin to feel clearly God's leading, God's urging, God's calling, test those moments, those, those experiences with Scripture, test it against the community of believers, yes, but that might be God speaking to you. And I'm not saying that God never shouts. Sometimes he does speak in loud, dramatic ways. In the Bible, Old Testament and New, God often shows up in the midst of dreams I think he's still doing that today. And I think there are other ways that God shouts even in our world today in the 21st century. But more often than not, God speaks to us today through his still, small voice of his word. So are we listening? And are we listening especially when it feels like God's losing? Because those are the moments where even though we're tempted to turn away and not listen, those are the moments where we should press in deeper and listen harder I mean, I think we see the opposite of that example in Elijah's life, and I hope we can learn from it. When he's on Mount Carmel, right after God drops fire from heaven to prove that he is who he says he is, it says that Elijah bows down on the mountain, hands on the ground, head between his knees to pray for the ending of the drought. And I don't know for certain, but I'm guessing that that was probably a pretty easy prayer to pray, a pretty easy moment in Elijah's life to try to listen to God, to seek out God. But a few weeks later, on the run with a hit on his head, where he feels like he's all alone, it's harder in those moments. And, and I can't blame him. If I was him, I'd want to crawl into my cave too, practice my own speech, my own defense, cover my ears and, and just listen to myself. I'd certainly love my voice enough. And when we do that, when in those moments where we feel like God might be losing, when we don't press in deeper but instead turn away, instead turn into our cave, it somehow feels like we're more in control, doesn't it? We create our own echo chambers or we're able to fill up the silence with, with whatever we can get our hands on first. 
The trouble is, if we fill up the silence, then we're definitely going to miss God because God whispers in the silence. Does your life have enough silence in it so that you can hear God whisper? God wants to speak to you. He does. And yeah, the Bible is a tough book. It's not always the easiest to understand. But are you trying? Are you learning to read it? It takes time, practice to be able to hear God's voice. For example, my wife Ashley and I have known each other for 10 years now. We've spent hours and hours talking to each other. And so I know her voice. Crowded place, noise everywhere, it doesn't matter. I can pick out Ashley's voice because I know it. I've learned it through careful daily practice. The more time you spend prayerfully in the Bible, the better you'll become at hearing God's whisper. Frankly, if we want to hear from God and aren't daily reading the Bible, then we're tricking ourselves. We're living in a cave, listening only to ourselves. God is quieter than we want, yes, but we can learn to hear him. And yes, I feel the struggle in this. Please don't hear me heaping condemnation down upon you. The rhythm, the routine, the practice, the discipline of daily Bible reading has long been a struggle in my own life. Too often I I blame my struggle on busyness or on having two young kids or of needing just 30 minutes more of sleep. And so I don't come to you this morning having it all figured out, but I, I come to you like Elijah in my own cave, too often listening to my own voice. But God is calling me out of my cave. And he's calling you out of yours. Will we come? And when we come, what will will our response be? Will we be like Elijah where, where our response doesn't change at all? Word for word, he's given two chances to respond to God and he says the exact same thing. He's practiced his speech one too many times. He's in his head too deep. And he doesn't remember who he's talking to. He says the exact same thing. And so God responds to him with another kind of whisper. Something so mundane, so anticlimactic, and so slow. God responds with a whisper in action. This is verses 15 and 16. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. These verses are really interesting to me. Even if they don't sound interesting, stick with me. You see, what God is having Elijah do here is retrace his steps. He's having him undo his journey to Mount Sinai which on the face of it probably would seem pretty confusing, I would think, to Elijah. If I'm him, I'm thinking, wait a second, why'd you send me here in the first place only to tell me to go back? But then you realize that God never sent him to Mount Sinai. Look back, he never does. He sustains Elijah with a snack and a nap. He tells him that the journey will be too much to him, but he doesn't say that that journey is to go to Mount Sinai. He doesn't send him to the mountain. In fact, what's God's question for Elijah when he does show up there and they have their conversation? His question, it's, it's, it's gentle, but it's a little bit accusatory. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? 
In other words, Elijah, you're not where I want you to be. You're not where I need you to be. I've got more work for you to do, and here's what it is. Prepare this foreign king to take over in Syria. I'm going to use him. Then I want you to prepare Jehu to be the next king in Israel. They'll eventually, many years down the road, take care of Ahab and Jezebel. Oh, but you also better anoint your prophetic successor, Elisha, because you're not going to be around to see any of this happen. How's that sound for a plan? And you can almost imagine Elijah's response, right? How does that sound? It sounds lame. (laughs) It sounds slow. Why, Why can't we do that bit with the fire again on Mount Carmel? That was pretty cool. But you see, you see, God doesn't just whisper with his words. No, he also whispers with his works. He does. Yahweh is the God of everything. He is the God who's in control no matter what it seems like. And Elijah says to, and Yahweh says to Elijah, I am going to take care of this. I haven't forgotten. I am at work. I will woo my people back to myself. But it's going to take a long time. Which leads us to our second observation this morning. God is quieter than we want, but he's also slower than we expect. God is slower than we expect. And this is why, this point, God is slower than we expect. This is why it often seems from our perspective why God is losing. We want instant. We want Mount Carmel. We say, fix my family today. Heal my body now. Take away this temptation forever. Or even with global struggles, make injustice disappear. Here, heal your world and do it in my lifetime so I can see and be a part of it. Sooner rather than later, God. And God says, yes, I am doing that. I will. But it's going to feel like forever. And it's probably going to take longer than your lifetime. And, and yes, that's hard. That's frustrating. Because we get 80, 90 years maybe to inspect what it is that God is doing in this world, in our world. And frankly, that's just not long enough We often give God a failing grade when we're inspecting him because we can't see more than a few inches in front of us. Our problem runs too deep, deeper than we could ever imagine. Sin has broken and shattered everything. And so the solution to sin runs deep, just as deep, deeper even. And it takes a while, a long while. There's two verses in the book of 2 Peter in the New Testament that tease this tension out so well. And I love how Eugene Peterson captures the paraphrase of it. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Don't overlook the obvious here, friends. With God, one day is as good as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. God isn't late with his promise, as some measure lateness, as we measure lateness. God is restraining himself on account of you, holding back the end because he doesn't want anyone lost. He's giving everyone space and time to change. Aren't you glad that God held back the end for you? I know I'm glad he did for me. I'm so thankful for his patience that more and more might come to know him. It's why we exist as a church. It's why we're here. It's why we do what we do. But, but in the midst of God's patience, on the other side of it, We're so impatient. We say, God, do it quickly. I have to ask us this morning, then, 
Are we learning to take the long view? Are we learning to take the long view? Or are we in such a hurry with God's plan that we're constantly frustrated with him, disappointed, thinking that he's losing battle after battle after battle? Consider the span of Elijah's life for a second. Over the course of his years, the situation in Israel never gets better. In fact, it gets progressively worse and worse. But through Hazael, through Jehu, through Elisha, eventually change comes. Slowly, painstakingly, the people once more turn back to Yahweh. But Elijah doesn't get to see it. And what about us? We look at our families and we're begging God to come through for the next couple months. And that's important. I don't want to minimize that. But God is shaping our families and our kids for decades. Or I consider our church. A lot of times I'm just trying to make it to the next Sunday. But if I step back for a moment, I realize that what really what we hope for and what we pray for is that God is building something here through us that will outlast any of us. This isn't so much for you and for me as it, as it is for the people that are coming after us. That's the goal. That's the dream. Our vision when we're looking at our families, our communities, our nation, and our world, it only stretches, as I said, mere inches, but God sees it all. He does. And that's why our last observation this morning is so important. God is doing more than we can see. Yes, he's quieter than we want. And yes, he's slower than we would expect, but God is doing more than we could ever imagine or see. Elijah had forgotten this point. He had forgotten that God was doing more than he could see. God had already given him this encounter with Obadiah to encourage him that Obadiah and others were remaining faithful. But Elijah had forgotten that. But it's not just Obadiah and those prophets. God, in this passage, gives him this incredible reassurance in verse 18, where God says to Elijah, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. What reassurance. God says, the faithful few are out there, Elijah. You can't see it. You've forgotten. But there, have, there are those that have never abandoned me, those who have never even flirted with Baal worship. Again, God is doing more than you could ever ask, see, or imagine. I wonder what it was like for Elijah to hear those words of reassurance. You know, it really does remind me of Harry Potter. Sorry. Bill and I are in a competition to see who can, if I can mention Harry Potter more than he can mention C.S. Lewis. <laughs> I don't know who's winning. Somebody keep score. But I just reread the books this summer, and so it was fresh on my mind. There's this moment in the seventh book, and it's a lot like the spot that Elijah is in. Harry, the main character, feels alone in the fight against Voldemort, which if you don't know who the character Voldemort is, I mean his name, he's evil, right? Okay. He's despairing, and it feels like evil is winning. Harry is convinced that he and his two friends, Ron and Hermione, are the only ones fighting. But then they happen to catch this magical radio program, and Harry hears that others are fighting too, that they're not alone. And at the end of the program, J.K. Rowling, the author, she writes this, Harry, Ron, and Hermione were still beaming. Hearing familiar, friendly voices was an extraordinary tonic. Harry had become so used to their isolation, he had nearly forgotten that other people were resisting Voldemort. 
It was like waking from a long sleep. Back to 1 Kings. Elijah wakes up from his slumber. He walks out of the cave. He goes to find Elisha. That's the, the end of 1 Kings 19. It's the last part of that chapter, him finding and anointing Elisha for the future work. Because the work continues. God's mission moves on. Friends, none of us fight alone. None of us fight alone. We may never see the end of our war, not in this life, but we're never alone. And that's why we've titled the series, With Us. Time and time again, not just in this story, but in every one, we see this big idea that no matter what it feels like, no matter what it looks like, even if we're, we're in our own cave, even if we're, we're, we're holed up, if we've convinced ourselves we're alone, we're not. God is with us. But frankly, sometimes we are stuck in our own cave. We are listening to ourselves in our own echo chambers. And so we forget that God's alive. We forget that God is, as C.S. Lewis put it in the Chronicles of Narnia, that he's on the move. God is on the move. And he is. Think of what God's doing here at Christ Community Brookside. How many people have met Jesus here in the last couple years? You've probably noticed our congregation has grown by 50% since the fall of 2015. You're a part of that. The work that God is doing with, in and through our partnership with Christian Fellowship, just a few blocks over, it's an incredible church that we get to work with. Come join us on August 19th for the Noise Festival. And God's on the move all over the world too. The message of Jesus is thriving in places of great opposition and persecution. Places like Kenya, where our partner, the 11th Hour Network, mobilize, works to mobilize pastors and churches to reach Eastern Africa with the gospel. God's on the move. And he's not losing. He is doing so much more than we realize, than we can see. Quieter, yes. Slower, often. But unless we get out of the cave, we're going to miss it. And you know, strangely, God actually does his very best work in caves. Did you know that? Because if you want to talk about God losing battles, how about the story of Jesus? God came to this earth as a human baby in the ancient world, born into poverty, in the midst of great scandal and obscurity. Jesus was seemingly an ordinary man, a carpenter. And sure, he preached a few good sermons, and yeah, he performed a few miracles, but then he died in agony as a criminal, disgraced. Buried in a tomb, a cave. Never has God's plan felt quieter. Never has his plan felt slower. Never did our God seem like a bigger loser than he did on that day. But God does his best work in caves, for Jesus would not stay dead. Our sins would not stay master, and death and disappointment would no longer be our destiny. For Jesus came out of the cave alive, victorious, and he's alive now. And even when it feels like all is lost, Jesus is never finished. And he longs to do the same for me and for you, to wake us up, to give us life, and to call us out. What are you waiting for? Come out of the cave. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that your son Jesus didn't stay dead. Thank you that he came out of the cave victorious over death, victorious over sin. And may we trust in that story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection so that we too can come out of our caves, so that we too can trust 
in your son Jesus for our own eternal life. Thank you, Father, for that true story. Thank you that it is at the bedrock foundation of our faith. And thank you, Lord, that we get a chance to participate in it every single day. Grateful for you and grateful for Jesus. Pray all this in his name. Amen.